They understand that idea of what can happen, of what can go wrong. The fact that Liverpool supporters have been through that before and that everybody, even people like me who were not alive at the time when it happened, has that kind of collective local memory of what happened kind of instilled in you from, from growing up meant that everybody knew what to do. The reason why I get upset is um, you just think like all these people, what they've been through, it's just happening again. And at that time, you know, when, when it's all happening, you know, hand on heart, I thought someone was going to die. I worked on Hillsborough for 30 years and I never felt that we would be back in the same seat again, making the same kind of points. Then things changed. There was police everywhere. They were dressed up like RoboCop. Stewards called riot police on duty inside the stadium for support. And then without warning, the fans are tear gassed. Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Today we're here to talk about Treated with Contempt, an independent panel report into fans' experiences before, during and after the 2022 Champions League final in Paris at Stade de France of Liverpool versus Real Madrid. The authors of that report are Phil Scraton, Dina Hayden, Lucy Easthope, Patricia Canning and Peter Marshall and today we have Phil and Dina in to talk about their findings. This major event of the sporting world collapsed into what would become a profoundly traumatising experience for the men, women and children attending the final. With issues emerging regarding crowd safety, venue management, personal security and duty of care being compromised. We'll kick off maybe with you, Phil. Could you tell us a bit about the incident that occurred at this final of Liverpool and Real Madrid? If I give you just a little bit of background, the European Cup final should have been held in Russia. And in February, because of the Ukrainian issue, it was decided to move it to Stade de France. And it was in actual fact the French Prime Minister who offered the stadium as the venue. Uh, so everything changed and um, Liverpool and uh, Real Madrid, two of the most famous football teams in Europe, in fact in the world, got to the final. So it was obvious there were going to be a lot of people coming to Paris for the final. And what happened was the French authorities decided that they would have what they call fan zones in the city for both sets of supporters in different places. 
as many thousands of people going to the match decided to turn the event into a holiday and go on um, go on a holiday in France immediately afterwards. And we have to remember that people are coming from all over the world for this, and they were paying an awful lot of money for it. The actual cost of tickets was uh, anything up to £600. Their accommodation in the city was really expensive. So a lot of people had invested a lot of money and a lot of time in coming to this great night, this great spring night in Paris. The match was uh, due to kick off at 9 o'clock European time, 8 o'clock our time. And in actual fact, uh, it became very clear that there was going to be a delay. And this was immediately a question of whether or not fans had turned up late at the stadium. In other words, they left it till the last minute. It soon became apparent that that hadn't happened. Many of them had been held in long queues without water, without access to toilets, for up to two and a half hours before the kickoff. And they were being filtered into the stadium. We didn't know that at the time. What we knew at the time was that Liverpool fans were not in their seats, but we hadn't got the explanation. And that explanation gradually began to filter through simply because these, this is the age of mobile phones. And um, in a nutshell, uh, what happened was that as they arrived at the stadium, they were held outside the stadium in long, dense queues. They'd already had problems getting to the stadium because there'd been a strike, and one of the two main feeders uh, in terms of the rail uh, rail supply was off so the majority of people came on one uh, of those feeders and they were not properly directed to the stadium and in fact it was a convoluted way through housing and then across a motorway to get to the stadium when they arrived in the outer perimeter there was an underpass and the underpass was blocked by police vehicles with only a few people allowed to go through at a time and that's where the first density of the crowd built. On the other side of that tunnel, there were stewards checking tickets even before they arrived at the concourse to gain entry into the stadium. So these ticket checks slowed everything down. Uh, the police presence slowed everything down. And the first thing that the fans noticed when they arrived at this point was that the majority of police officers were in riot gear. In other words, they looked and were like paramilitary police. That was the build-up outside of the stadium, even before they arrived on the inner concourse. And I'll just say one thing about the inner concourse, is, it, is that it's, a, it's like a platform right around the stadium. Most of us who go to big rock concerts know what a concourse looks like inside. And it's on that concourse that uh, fans then had to queue to gain access to their gates to get into the stadium. And those gates were opening and closing sporadically, causing yet another delay on the inner concourse. So that is the background to the situation. Liverpool fans remained incredibly calm because they have memories of Hillsborough in 1989 when, in actual fact, you have to remain calm in those situations. You can't panic. So this major event of the sporting world then quickly collapsed into this very traumatising experience for the men, women and children that, that were attending. 
I know that whenever I was watching the early reports at home, they triggered memories of Hillsborough and particularly of the negative discourses that were propagated about fans at that time. How did you feel watching this from home? I think it was exactly the same reaction. And the thing that I was most concerned about was the experiences of children and young people because it was a family event. People had gone for an enjoyable, you know, weekend or evening and um, were all excited. And you could see straight away that there were really dense crushes of people and thinking, okay, this does not look like it's how it should be. It's not being managed in any way. People really desperate to get into the ground, even though they'd been waiting there for two to three hours beforehand. They knew that kickoff was coming soon and nothing was happening. There were lots of empty seats in the stadium. And then when they put up um, on screens, a big message saying there'll be a delay due to the late arrival of fans. We were sort of thinking that that's probably not the case. And then actually cameras from journalists who were at the match were panning outside and there were just thousands of people waiting outside to get in. And, you know, afterwards they were saying we've been here for two to three hours waiting. So, um I think that was an initial um, reaction. What is happening is not what's being stated on the screens. And then certainly going through the statements of people after the event was really clear that actually for many fans who are Hillsborough survivors or have the memory of Hillsborough within their families and extended family and whole city of Liverpool, it's a very significant issue um, for so many people. They felt that the official narrative reflected exactly what happened at Hillsborough, where it was about late arrival of fans, ticketless fans, you know, aggressive fans. And they were saying, no, this definitely was not the case. And then, of course, as Phil just said again, media coverage and people having on their mobile phones footage of actually what was happening at the time clearly demonstrated that people were very calm. In fact, their memories of Hillsborough and recollections of that situation encouraged people to be saying, stay calm, we know what's happened. You know, people were very um, supportive of each other. They shielded children, they shielded el the elderly, people who were panicking or people with disabilities. They helped each other. They, you know, supplied water to people who had been tear gassed. It was a very protective response from the fans who were there because they had that memory. And I do think that actually is what stopped the situation being worse and any fatalities happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's certainly what I found really moving of the coverage that has come out since then. The Liverpool's fans' self-management of yeah. the situation, which was rooted in their prior experiences and the, the legacy of Hillsborough. Dina mentioned tear gas. Yeah. I think one of the important issues to state here was that a lot of the fans, when they arrived, suddenly realised there were a lot of local people who hadn't got tickets and a lot of local young people who were trying to gain entry into the stadium but were also stealing from fans. They were taking their mobile phones, they were taking their wallets. So you had a double problem faced by the fans. One, trying to get into the stadium, but two, not being protected against robbery. And once they were on the inner concourse, that was the point at which actually breaching international guidelines, the police used tear grass on the crowd. 
and the crowd was docile. It was doing nothing. One of the most harrowing issues, as Dina has just said, that we've we've had to deal with going through this are the experiences of parents and their children, older people, people in wheelchairs, actually completely helpless and trapped being tear-gassed. And I think that 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 relationship between the them being robbed by locals and then being tear-gassed by the police created a, a, a real issue. So UEFA quickly appointed an inquiry into the event. What do you think were the issues with that, with the report that um, would be coming out of that, and how did your research come about in response to that? Within... A few days of this happening, it was announced that a Portuguese politician, uh, Dr. Rodriguez, would be appointed to chair a an independent panel on behalf of UEFA to investigate the whole event. I had quite a long conversation in that first week with Dr. Rodriguez because he rang me to see if I would contribute to the panel. It was then that I discovered that the two senior advisors to the panel were both former uh, planners working for UEFA. I also discovered that Dr. Rodriguez himself had very close UEFA connections. Immediately the alarm bell rang for me. How could this inquiry that was being conducted um, on, on the behest of UEFA be at all independent when you had people who, as I would put it, were place people? They had a panel that was slightly larger than that to advise them. But it was very clear from my conversations that although the Liverpool Football Club had put my name forward to be on the panel, that that would not come about. So the panel was then established. Um, the formal the formal panel was established. By this time, I had already put out an appeal for statements from fans and naively thought that I would be getting a number coming in each week. And over the next three days, we gathered nearly 500 detailed statements from fans who'd been caught up in this, many from women, many from older people. This wide representation of the fan base was there before us. And immediately I realised as is so often the case with me, I'd probably bitten off more than I could chew. And the only way we could deal with this was to have a, a panel of our own people with expertise in the areas. And so that's how it came about that we had a five-person panel, one on the media, one on emergency planning. Dina, whose main work in historically is on children, young people, and marginalized groups. Um, and then uh, another person who's a, a social psychologist uh, working on a, a detailed examination of the statements. That was the panel that was established, and that's what we took forward, and that is the report that you've already alluded to that's been, that's been published. With regards to preparing for an event of this size, UEFA had three months to prepare for the masses of people that were going to be coming to Stade de France. What were your main findings with regards to the preparation that occurred and with regards to what that meant for the logistics as the event unfolded? I think one of the 
one of the issues is that actually, you know, three months isn't as long as would normally be the case, but it's actually quite a long time. And the Stade de France is a national stadium, which is used to putting on events with thousands of people. So you would think they would have contingency plans ready and waiting to be used for any kind of event. Um, I think one of the main issues of what came out of what people were saying was that actually many of UEFA's own guidelines about safety at stadiums were breached. Um, there was a, a real emphasis on policing and control of crowds rather than the safety and protection of crowds. And that set the agenda for how the whole operation developed. There were no clear disability access or exit points around the stadium. So many of the people with disabilities, wheelchair users were having to get out of their wheelchair, have their wheelchair passed over a turnstile, then they went through the turnstile. Or people who um, had mobility problems were having to stand for hours in these queues, being crushed, you know, being very upset and concerned for their own safety. Um, and then when they got into the ground, couldn't find their seats, people who were wheelchair users they had people who were standing in the spaces that they were supposed to be able to access you know none of those things had been properly managed by the stewards um, but the policing is the main issue that affected fans experiences in terms of very aggressive very threatening in your face um, for a lot of the fans but also um ignoring calls for help or questions about where people needed to go and what needed to happen. And that was really a significant issue for many people who felt actually as threatened by the police as they did by the locals who were, as Phil was saying, filtering into the crowds, pickpocketing, and then actually at the end, the police seemed to disappear and big gangs of locals were very violently attacking fans as they left the stadium where the police should have been managing that situation, they were nowhere to be seen. So, you know, I think there were a number of different issues that had not been addressed, despite the fact that this is a national stadium where events are carried out all the time. And those should be, you know, clear tick off lists of have we done this? Have we done this? Many of those um, guidelines were not followed under UEFA's own guidelines and regulations. I, I just want to pick up on that because that's a really important point before we talk about the police, because obviously UEFA have a major role here. And although three months might not seem a lot of time, as Dina has already pointed out, they hold uh, a whole range of events there all the time. Uh, so all of the basic framework should be in place. But I want to just talk about UEFA. UEFA is the managing body for all European soccer and it's based in Switzerland. It's a very powerful institution. It's all of the federations of within Europe are part of it. And it is the organizing group. And this is the, we have to remember, this isn't just any match. This is the European Cup final watched all over the world. It's the biggest club game in soccer in Europe in any given year. The UEFA guidelines are absolutely clear and they were only updated two years ago. First of all, there has to be open and free accessibility to the event. There has to be health and safety of fans is of paramount importance. There has to be appropriate security to protect the fans. And there has to be emergency preparedness. In other words, emergency preparedness means any contingency has to be uh, accounted for. So the crowd is watched all the time. 
on CCTV footage from a main control box to ensure that those issues are being carried through. And the final one, as Dina has already mentioned, is there has to be open disability access, not people being lifted from the wheelchairs and lifted over turnstiles. That is ridiculous. They are their own guidelines. And what our report shows absolutely unequivocally from the statements is that every single guideline was broken. The optimum flow of people, fully operational turnstiles, clear walkways and CCTV provision all failed. And just while we're on that, this is a remarkable fact that we discovered very early in the research. All the CCTV provision that existed from all of the cameras in and around the stadium was wiped within a week. It had gone. It doesn't exist. So the very evidential base that any of us would be looking towards in order to demonstrate what was actually happening in those walkways, what was happening in the turnstiles, what was happening inside the ground. And we have to remember that the fans, when they were leaving at the end of the game, were first of all let, let go out into the area where people were robbing from them, locals were robbing from them, and I'm talking about women and children being beaten to the ground. At the same time as that, they came out of that under a walkway and they were confronted by paramilitary police who tear-gassed them again, and they were doing nothing. So if you look at the UEFA guidelines and you look at the international police guidelines for the management of these events, all of them were comprehensively breached. That's pretty astounding information that the CCTV of the events outside were wiped. And in a way, you mentioned at the start, one of the positive aspects of our age is this age of technology where people can record what it is that they're that they're experiencing, when which is particularly pertinent when you see institutions um, failing to fulfill their obligations towards them. So after previous disasters, guidelines have been created for such events, but the issue here is that these guidelines were breached by UEFA on the day. You've spoken a bit about the policing that occurred, the issue with the policing of fans within the stadium, but also the the issue of policing not protecting fans once they got outside of the stadium. Um, do you think that that was impacted at all by negative stereotypes the police had or by the policing reports that the police would have received prior to the event? I mean, I think many of the statements, in many of the statements, fans are really clear that the police had negative assumptions about their behaviour. And an example of that was before the end of the match, riot police were lined up in front of the Liverpool fans, nowhere near the Madrid fans, and it gave the impression that they were expecting trouble from these fans. The fact that there were riot police there at all, and the fact that they had used tear gas against people who were standing stationary in crushed crowds at the gates waiting to get in, you know, it was all indicative of a mindset of the police, which was very negative and very um, focused on management of crowds who didn't need managing because they were actually managing themselves. As you said, they self-policed because of their memories of Hillsborough and the fact that they were keeping themselves safe. The issue that is also really significant here 
that needs to be said is that before every match uh, internationally, the home country from these teams sends a report in preparation to the police in the receiving country. So the French police received a report from the Merseyside police, and this has only just come to light as we are as we are releasing the report. In that report, it it warns of the between fifty or. 100 problematic fans but it says that they are lone rangers that it doesn't say that they're groups so it's not like they're groups of hooligans or as, as they would be stereotyped they're lone rangers they're, they're individuals who could or might cause some trouble um but they don't they don't state what that trouble might be the intelligence that comes from that policing report also instructs the french police to be prepared um, for there to be problems at the at that at and around the stadium, and then in in a contradictory tone, it says Liverpool fans have a really good record of behaviour. Yeah. So these mixed messages were going through, but one of the things it states in the report is it estimates about forty thousand people would be travelling without tickets. Now this is a really important point because this is the actual figure that was given by the French minister in the days after the event, that there were 40,000 people without tickets. That has to be dispelled immediately because what it was meant by the police report would be that all these people would be turning up to go to Paris and to visit the fan zone, but they wouldn't be approaching the stadium. That was never, never suggested. That could have been interpreted in that way by the French police. But the other issue that's really significant about this is the record shows that there were just over 2,000 forged tickets identified at the stadium when people were attempting to go into the stadium. Now, they say that there's about 1,500 amongst the Liverpool supporters. What we've been able to show in the research is that because the ticket scanners were failing so badly, people with genuine tickets who would be trying to get into the stadium and the system was reading their tickets and rejecting it. And they'd got their, they'd got their tickets from, from Liverpool Football Club. Some people had their ticket rejected six or seven times and many left the stadium not being able to go into the ground even though they had a valid ticket. Now, the important point about that, and it sounds technical but it isn't, is that that recorded as seven false tickets. So this figure of a 1,000 uh, people trying to gain entry with fraudulent tickets is a complete myth. It is not true. There will have been one or two. Some people will have tried it on. But, you know, um, the, 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 this idea that, first of all, there were 40,000, then that was reduced now to 1,500 amongst Liverpool fans, and even that figure is now questionable. So... And everybody has said in all the testimonies, you know, they never saw anybody trying to get in without tickets. And all there's loads of, of, of really important comments about we left our mates in the fan zone in central Paris and we went up to the stadium because they were watching it there in the fan zone on big screens yeah. that the French authorities had put out for them. So this discourse is still persisting of the fake tickets and of the people without tickets approaching the grounds and causing the crush. What was it that led to this crush then? To these crushes that were occurring on the entry to the stadium and um, at the turnstiles? 
Well, the first thing was the quantity of people that arrive were arriving towards the stadium, um, and they were all then going under an underpass approaching the stadium. And then the police put two police vans uh, diagonally against each other, and they were basically letting a few people through at a time. So that just meant that thousands of people were were stuck and building up in this underpass. And it took a very long time to two hours for many people to be waiting there to get through to the front of this uh, big crowd. And then when they got to the concourse, as Phil said, there were crowds waiting at the gates because the gates kept opening and closing. And when they opened, they just let a few people through, then they closed again. So again, you've got thousands of people queuing up to go in most of the gates were closed and so there's a build-up of crowds there um it was just very poor management of the crowds and uh, phil was describing you know cctv footage of a from a control room as there was at hillsborough it must have been really evident that this was happening but actually nothing was done there were no contingency plans for the police to say okay we will open up these gates make sure they're open direct everybody to those gates to uh, you know increase the flow of people coming through within a short period of time. So it was mainly about the um, policing of the crowds, narrow th narrowing things down to bottlenecks, and then very, very few people going through at any time, which led to massive build-ups behind them. And one of the things was that then, you know, as Phil described, the police were just walking along, tear-gassing people who were standing in confined spaces, not going anywhere and not doing anything but waiting very calmly. So, you know, it's a very distressing situation. One of the things I just wanted to just give an illustration of the impact. I mean, for me, one of the main issues is the impact on children and young people. Um, because they're not they're not writing statements and they are very rarely asked their you know views about what's happened but one mother was writing for example about the impact on her 10 year old and this just gives an indication of the kinds of things that happened she says we got near the stadium i don't even know how to describe it we got squashed people were pushing because there was that many of us literally we didn't have space to breathe her child started to panic she said for the first time in my life i was scared for my son's life for our lives i didn't know what to do i felt so useless i felt like i have no control over protecting my son and that's my job as a mom I was trying so hard to hold back the tears so my child didn't see me upset and panic even more. I asked him to keep breathing through his nose and out of his mouth. Other Liverpool fans seen him struggling and kept talking to him, asking him questions about other matches he's been to just to take his mind off everything. I felt numb. I was terrified, but I had to stay strong for my son. And then once their tickets had been checked by the police and they went in to walk towards their time style, she thought, OK, we're all right now. And then she said the queue for the gate was massive. There's absolutely no one to ask for help. I've not seen a single steward. It was 8.20 and I remember my child said to me, we won't miss the match, will we, mum? I just said to him, oh, don't worry about it, we'll be fine. But people started to scream and we got pushed towards the barriers. A child then got hurt and he said he started to panic even more. And I honestly thought at that particular point, that's it. How on earth will we get out of here? How? I couldn't, I couldn't calm him down. People around us were screaming. Some people were helping me to shout for the stewards at the front to get their attention but no one even looked at us no one bothered to help one Liverpool fan asked me to pour water on my child which I did I was talking to him constantly and other people were doing the same 
It was 8.55 and the match was due to kick off at nine. When we finally made it to the front of the turnstile where we had to scan our tickets, my child passed out then. Someone helped me to move him to the side. I don't even remember who it was. I didn't know what to do. I never felt so scared in my life, never. Eventually, he opened his eyes and burst into tears. And then she talks about them watching the game. And she says, my son is scarred for life. He can't stop thinking about what's happened and why this happened to us. And she talks about, you know, her son being as she describes him, the most passionate boy. He loves Liverpool. He never stops singing. He never stops cheering. But here he was. He just sat with his head in his hands while the match was going on. And my heart's broken. I, I would want people to realise that out of the nearly 500 statements we took, that is not untypical. I had so many of the statements actually emphasise that sequence of events. And the issue for those people is that for those of uh, many of them who are going to stay in Paris and go on holiday in France came home. Others got trapped in Paris because they got injured and had to go to hospital and pay extortionate amounts of money to get home. But the other issue, and we've been dealing with this all through the research, is that those who did go through that experience didn't just walk away. They have been left in a dreadful state, Liverpool Football Club have set up um, counselling services, counselling services in Liverpool and beyond have been established. Um, there is obviously help given to children in school who are going through these experiences. And I think that anybody who, I don't think you even have to be a parent, anybody who realises that when you have children for whom you're responsible, or you have a partner for whom you're responsible, or anybody for whom you're responsible, when you put into that position, the guilt that's attached to it is added dramatically to the pain and suffering on the night. And that is, and as we've seen from the massive mailbag we have, that is considered, that, that, is con that has continued right up to the present moment. And quite often people who suffer um, stress as a result of major events, it doesn't show uh, often for months in, when another event can trigger it. Um, it's called, and I think it's, 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 it's probably a misnomer, post-traumatic stress disorder. But in actual fact, it is not really a disorder. It is your body, your mind, going back and repeating those very events that Dina has just so clearly illustrated in that one statement. I think the other issue is that, you know, many people came away physically harmed, so they've got terrible bruises from being crushed um, against people, but also against barriers, against walls. And broken against bones as well. Yeah, broken bones. You know, the physical harm is there. Their faces, their eyes have been really damaged by having tear gas sprayed into them but the emotional harms are really significant and there was a head teacher who wrote a statement um, a head teacher of a secondary school and he said you know there are children here who will be traumatized for years as a result of that experience and actually on any video footage that you see there are off lots of children who are just screaming this and I don't want to go I don't want to you know I want to go away I don't want to go to another match again can we just leave you know and that those experiences will stay with people I mean one of the other things was the fact that many people who are Hillsborough survivors were there with their own children 
And that brought back not only their own personal experiences, but now they're in a situation where the children that they've taken to a family event have been traumatised. And like Phil was saying, you know, the guilt that comes with that of being a parent who wasn't able to keep their child safe, you know, adds to what is already a traumatising experience in their lives. So that was a very significant, you know, number of statements were saying that kind of thing. I mean, it's so significant, I think, that this catastrophe has occurred to Liverpool fans again. What you're describing, the re-traumatisation that is occurring for these fans, as well as this new generation of Liverpool supporters now suffering from these physical and psychological impacts. And I would imagine to financial impacts because you were talking a bit about what happened when people left the stadium. I heard uh, Red fans describe it as a war zone outside with yeah. the attacks and the thefts that they injured. When the game finished, they thought that their trials and tribulations were over, but trying to get to the the uh, the station to get home or to their buses, their coaches, many of whom, of course, missed their missed their transport. They were attacked again, and they were attacked by locals. They were attacked by paramilitary police. Uh, there was no protection from the attacks, and that actually at the station they were attacked, but also in the city they were attacked. So it 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 was almost as if they were fair game, and. You know, I know a lot of people listening to this will say, oh, you're painting this rosy picture of Liverpool fans, but there is no alternative discourse. There is no discourse that has come out by anybody. No, no footage, no camera footage, no photographs that show aggression coming from Liverpool supporters. And I think that it's really, uh, this is probably the most striking thing about issues that happen in the modern day. So much is recorded on mobile phones. So much is, is recorded um, on street corners by a whole range of different cameras that are up on shop fronts and etc, uh, etc. Et so I think that that's part of that story. What I would like to just push towards is saying, so, OK, you're, you're not newspaper reporters, you're five academics, um, well, four academics and one media specialist um, working on this. Um, where's your academic analysis? You know, in other words, I'd like to take it beyond now from from personally, from just what happened, and people can re read the report in, in depth, it's there online. Um, but, you know, what does this tell us uh, about how we approach an analysis of events such as this and in, in terms of legal liability, in terms of responsibility politically, um, in other words, taking it not just from a, a recording of events, not just which are very important and not just statements of people, but these statements are evidential. And there is a mass action being taken at this very minute, which I'm in, in, involved with on, the, on, on, on advising a mass action of Liverpool fans who are taking an action against UEFA and the, all the authorities involved. So I think it's really important when you see research such as this that we gather the evidence 
in a way that is methodical, in a way that is incontrovertible, that can then inform not only future policy in terms, which is our main intention, future policy in terms of crowd management, future policy in terms of not just football, soccer, but a whole range of public events to make them safer for people, but also what is the foundation that we can lay for class action in terms of people who um, who should be able to take their cases through the courts. Yeah, and part of that is accountability of the authorities who are responsible for selling the tickets, organising the game, UEFA, the authorities who are responsible for policing, for stewarding. I mean, we haven't actually touched on stewarding very much, but it seems that stewards were not well qualified. They weren't well, they weren't trained. They didn't know how to respond to people. They panicked. They were quite aggressive towards fans. You know, all of that is not how it should be. Um, so it's about holding um, accountable the authorities who are responsible for managing an event like this. But it is also about challenging what became very quickly the official discourse which very clearly was incorrect and very clearly was demonstrated to be the case through footage and fans um, testimonies and journalists accounts who were there at the time but it's about then holding people to account for actually presenting you know such narratives in parliament and on tv and you know uh, internationally broadcast um snippets from the the ministers at the time and to me that's an important element of what we are aiming to do as well yeah i mean that's a really important point the the fact that two senior ministers in a government immediately came out with a narrative that was completely false and based based on false assumptions that's one of the important things about critical research. Critical research gives us the opportunity to challenge authority when authority gets it wrong. And in this case, authority had it wrong at different levels. It had it wrong in terms of administering and controlling the event. It actually had it wrong in terms of how the official response was so quick. That was very reminiscent of Hillsborough, you know, when the official response had, had put all the responsibility onto Liverpool fans at Hillsborough, and it took nearly 30 years to resolve that issue. Because there's so much footage, there's so much contrary evidence, that narrative was 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 um was destroyed in 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 days the chief of police for example who'd been right at the forefront of pro progressing that narrative had to resign so that was really significant but we've heard nothing from the two ministers of state who made these comments about the um, liability of liverpool fans and i think that's what as researchers i feel passionate about you know that we have the opportunity here to be able to analyse and build uh, an appropriate discourse to that that is issued by the official by the official bodies, and to make the challenge, you know, state to them very clearly, we have got here fifty two findings that you have to answer at all levels, you know, and that is uh, the significance in a very short period of time. I mean, we've worked in three months to put this 80-odd thousand word report together. And, you know, it's actually clear in the report that there is such a strong case for all the authorities to answer. So I guess then the outcomes of this report are first creating a counter discourse to that really damaging official discourse that emerged instantly um, to trying to affect systemic change. 
I guess, and also bringing about some accountability for those who experience this traumatic event. Yeah, definitely. And also legitimating their accounts yeah. because, you know, we literally had hundreds of people all saying the same sorts of things. So, you know, it's incontrovertible, the evidence that we have presented in the report. And um, and for many fans who have said why they have written, partly it was a cathartic process for some of them who were just trying to make sense of what they'd just been through. But mainly it was about saying we've got to challenge the official narrative and we've got to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. And the main reason that most people put forward their stories about what they've experienced. We don't want other people to have to go through this. We don't, you know, and actually the Stade de France is due to be held for the Rugby World Championships next year and for the Olympics in 2024. So, you know, there is potential for these situations to be repeated. And it's not just the Stade de France, of course, that's the situation here, but it's any big stadiums or venues for events such as this where thousands of people are coming and need to be properly looked after, not managed and, um, you know, with a focus on control and regulation rather than safety and protection. Mm, Absolutely. So it's about preventing future life or protecting future life and preventing future catastrophe. Because I think one of the things that is, is, is so clear to us and Dina's just touched on it very, very well, or made the point very well, which is, you know, the, 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 the future learning from this has got, has, has got to be, be taken right across the board, right across all of world events, not just, not just in Europe, but, uh, but world events. Because since then, we have had in Indonesia another catastrophe where tear gas was used on a crowd uh, as the crowd were, were, were um, trying to exit the stadium. They rushed once they were tear gassed, they rushed to get out, and over 120 have died, including children, mm-hmm. in the crush. Now... It's, it is incredible that that has happened in, in, in another society, another major event, you know, um, within months. And so those issues are really significant. And I think the issue of holding people to account is really crucial. But I think as researchers, we don't want to, we don't want to miss the human stories either. After the dust settles... You know, and after the case has gone through the courts and the, if, if they do go through the civil cases or they're settled, after all the stories are told, after we have done our research and the, some of the fine newspaper reporting is complete and a few documentaries have been made, I think about that family in their house, living their life every day and what the long-term impact is of that. When you have a traumatic event, for those who are caught up in it, it never ends. There can be resolution in terms of the courts. There can be settlements in terms of the courts. And when you have legal teams going away and saying, we got a good settlement, you know, fans have had their story told in court, they've had their day in court, and they've walked away and they've had a pecuniary settlement. It doesn't settle. The word settlement is, in that context, is entirely monetary. It has nothing to do with a settled mind. But also, for many of these fans who are really 
very strong, avid supporters, you know, they now don't want to go into situations where there are crowds. Many of them talked about not going the following day to the celebrations which Liverpool Football Club had where they went through the city. And, you know, that's an opportunity for people to really show their appreciation of the club and and all the management and, and everybody else. They did not, they couldn't face being involved in that after waiting for years to be in that situation. But they also, you know, are saying, I don't actually want to go to another football game. I'm certainly not going to any away games because there is no guarantee that the fans can be protected in that situation. So that has a major impact on how they lead their lives as well as their own personal um, feelings and, and management of anxiety and sleeplessness and nightmares and all those other psychological impacts of being involved in that event. Yeah, so it's really had significant uh, traumatic impact upon yeah. everyone that attended. Yeah. Absolutely. The final thing I want to ask is, obviously, Hillsborough has been a big part of both of your lives. And Phil, you worked on the Hillsborough Report and the Hillsborough Panel and have dedicated a lot of your life to this. What do you see as the barriers to change and progress between Hillsborough and this event? And equally, was there anything that made you hopeful with regards to changes that have occurred between Hillsborough and this event in May? I think that one of the issues that people raised a lot after Hillsborough was the fact that the fans were attending on a terrace. They were standing and the terraces in these large facilities have now gone and you have seated capacity. But... That is not enough if you still have the potential for bottlenecks, if you don't have throughput. All emergency planning guidelines, and this is very clear in our report, uh, all emergency planning guidelines demonstrate there has to be a free flow, a free flow of people arriving uh, through the concourse area, through into the stadium and into their seats, and then at the end of the game, free flow out. And many of us are, are used to this now. If we go to big stadiums to watch a rock concert, we feel that when we go in. We feel that we're being managed, but we're being managed very positively. And that when we come out, the, the stadium have stadiums now have a, an exit time, and they have to be able to get all the people out in a certain amount of time onto the concourse and out. That's as much for fire reasons as it is um, for just ending the ending the concert or whatever it is. All those things are theoretically the legacy of Hillsborough and other events like Hillsborough. But what this demonstrates absolutely clearly is that you only have to have authorities not communicating with each other, not, in, not preparing appropriately, not understanding the issues around what effective crowd management and safety means. They only have to have a mindset of aggression themselves for that then to turn to a tragedy. Um, you know, what we saw here and there's no question about it, was that all aspects of the safety of fans were compromised and they were impelled into sustained personal and collective danger through negligent management of the event, poor stewarding, aggressive paramilitary policing and criminal assaults by gangs and by the police. So the message has to be, it's quite simple really, 
Every single one of those issues have to be addressed theoretically, as I said earlier. They are in the UEFA guidelines. But unless they're put into practice, we will always have this barrier of complacency. Oh, it's a national stadium. We don't really need to do the safety checks. You know, if you remember back to Hillsborough, one of the shocking revelations of Hillsborough was that the um, safety certificate for the stadium hadn't been renewed for 10 years and it was out of date. And there have been major modifications to the stadium in that time. Well, the legacy of this is nobody checked the safety certificate, the safety management process, because had they done that, they would have understood that to hold the crowd up before they even arrived at the concourse, making them go through um, ad hoc safety checks, then getting them onto a concourse where the gates were opening and closing, etc., etc., all of those things that we've just described would have been guarded against. So the issue is that you only have to have a relationship between three or four negative factors for us to end up in a tragedy. And the fact that nobody died here is a tribute to the fans' behaviour. And what we can actually see clearly um, in terms of the recent event in Indonesia is that things can go badly wrong still. Yeah, but I think on top of the official responses, one of the things to have come out of Hillsborough, and it's terrible that this is the case, is that, as we were saying, you know, fans' memories and experiences and knowledge of that has actually prevented further disaster because they have learned how to respond in that situation, both physically, like one of the statements the guy is talking about, well, you know, I learned from being at Hillsborough that when I was in the crush to put my arms up in the air because that gave me more control over my own movement. If your arms are pinned down by your side and you're being swayed because you're crushed in with a group of people, you've got no control. If you fall over, you're going to be trampled on. So, you know, very practical stuff like that, which nobody should have to really be thinking about. But because they've been through that, they did think about it and then enabled other people to take those steps. But also there is a very strong um, response amongst everyday people that actually know we've got the mobile phones collectively we can challenge the um, discourses that are put out there and Hillsborough is an example where that happened and although families had to fight for many many years and survivors uh, for that to happen it has happened there is a different perspective on that situation now and I think anybody coming through afterwards knows that that is a possibility and that collectively they can challenge what are the official discourses courses and they will be listened to and believed and the actual physical evidence is there on their phones and their videos and they can use that to present a very different alternative account and that that is really important for people yeah absolutely thank you very much both of you and um, that report is now out and can be accessed online treated with contempt thank, thank you. you very much thank, thank you, you.